If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is the Open City Podcast, a show about the past, present and future of London. It will feature new stories about the city and fresh perspectives on the challenges and opportunities we face together. Welcome to the Open City Podcast. In this Open House special episode, we'll be talking about how imagination, such as myths which celebrate our real or fictional past, can transform how we see the city around us and in turn create better places for everyone. Specifically, we'll be focusing on Seething Wells in Surbiton, a large former waterworks which played a pioneering role in the delivery of clean drinking water to central London and was a focus of Jon Snow's groundbreaking cholera study which created modern epidemiology. It's an area next to the River Thames, upstream from Kingston, which for a long time had been overlooked for its extraordinary history but has now been rediscovered by local residents who have taken its identity into their own hands over the course of several events, workshops and performances, often exploring light-hearted and fictional legends led by the arts organisation Community Brain. With lockdown forcing more and more of us to love, treasure and better understand our local areas, it's an ideal moment to reflect on the role imagination could play across London and beyond in building the inclusive, healthy and sustainable city we all strive for. I'm your podcast host, Merlin Fulcher. We're joined by my fellow host, Armin Nori, co-founder of Built Environment Collective, Eyesore, the Community Brain Director, Robin Hutchinson, and Chloe Clay, Urban Design Manager at Kingston Council. So many listeners, just like me and Armin, might be hearing of Seething Wells for the first time. Some of us may have even passed through the area without knowing a thing about its unique identity or its extraordinary history. So perhaps we could play a little game and invite our experts, Robin and Chloe, to tell us a few things about this mysterious riverside stretch of land. Yeah, sure. And thanks very much for allowing us on. Whether you'll be as pleased at the end of this is another matter. Um, So, yeah, Seething Wells is, uh, it's an amazing place, partly because it just fell out of local parlance. Originally, the area was known as Seething Wells and St Mark's as a voting district. Then it became St Mark's and Seething Wells. And then Seething Wells was dropped completely from it. So um, when we started to look at creating events and happenings in the Surbiton area, um, we were conscious of the fact that perhaps some of the stuff we do might uh, rattle a few cages. So we didn't want to use Surbiton as the name. So we thought Seething Wells was ideal because 
basically it had fallen out of people's language. Um, and so we started to create some reasonably um, fun events uh, like Serbton Ski Sunday, where people strap blocks of ice to their feet and ski down the hill by St Mark's Station, uh, Serbton Station. Um, and then we created the legend of Leffy Ganderson, the goat boy that defeats a giant to give the land of seething back to its residents as long as they... Oh. As Robin, long- I think I've I've spotted the first myth. Yeah, it could because I said. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we so made so it, it was true <laughs> that you created. You, you started out by looking into the history, but what's this? The legend of goat Leffy, Leffy Ganderson, the goat boy of Mount Seething. So we created basically Surbiton Seething used to have a mountain, and um, right, that, it, it was that's qu- got to be another myth. Well, no, you see, it was quarried to build Ham House and Hampton Court Palace, or was it? Or did a giant knock it down to try and destroy Leffy Ganderson's uh, home? Well, it's up to you which side of that you fall. Um, but we then decided, wouldn't it be great if we recreated the celebration of Leffy Ganderson? So wouldn't it be great to get back onto the street and process in honour of this mythical goat boy? And so about 10 years ago, we decided we'd have our first procession setting off at 3 o'clock. And at 10 to 3, there were five of us. And at 5 to 3, there were 15. And my heart was beginning to sink into a, this isn't going to work at all, is it? And then at 3 o'clock, we had about 300 people processing round in honour of this has grown each year. Now we get upwards of a thousand, two thousand people parading around the streets, celebrating community, place, and space. Yeah, there's certainly a powerful tool that you're deploying here in getting people imaginative about local history. So come on, Chloe, myths and legends. Uh, by the end of the 19th century, Serbiton had become a highly sought-after place to live and work, and prided itself on the famously healthy lifestyles of the residents. Water. I believe this. Uh, (laughs) That that bit is true. But is this bit true? Uh, Water in this area was considered medicinal, especially good for kidney stones. Oh, give me some now. I need it. (laughs) (laughs) True or false? Does it help with livers as well? I don't know about that. You'd have to go go back to the beginning of the 19th century, wouldn't you? I'm going with true on that one. Melon? Yeah, I think true. I totally, I believe in water. Uh, I lived near Streatham. That was famous for its wells. Yeah, Epsom. South London's super famous for its water. I believe in this. Uh, Robin, am I telling the truth? Who knows, Treasure? It's you. <laughs> who knows? Who knows? <laughs> that is true. Um, nice. And people used to sneak into uh, the reservoirs at night on a full moon to bathe in the basin as a means to rid their illnesses. Mm. True or false? Uh, maybe, yeah, maybe I could imagine sort of like a, a king or a member of the court from Hampton Court <laughs> jumping. I'm going with true, but if it, I, I feel like I'm, I'm trusting you way too much on this one, but I'm going to go with true as well. Okay, no, I, I don't think that's true, although people probably did. Who knows? Um, and the last one I've got was that Siamese algae eaters and grass carp were introduced to the waters to keep it clean. It was thought these fish grew to extraordinary sizes due to the expanse of the reservoir. I'm worried this is all true. You've just shared us just several true things. It's true, right? Well, n- no, it's not true. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I fell for the trick. <laughs> 
No, I thought that was quite a good one, because why wouldn't you, right? As you will know, the Thames used to be home of the freshwater sardine, then pollution kills it, um, and now the Thames is clean again. They started farming freshwater sardines back in seething. Because of snagging of the nets, they are now back in the river. So once a year in May, which, as you will know, is, is, is spawning season for the sardines, we go down and we catch freshwater sardines, and then we process them led by four giant guinea pigs to a green space where they're barbecued and given away for free. Well, it's funny, Robin, that you talk about these sardines. You've clearly not heard about the giant eels of Putney, which are the size of a double-decker bus. I've never caught one either, in either sense. But it's why Surbiton ended up with a railway station ahead of anywhere else, was to get the sardines into London uh, to be fresh, and which is why even today we say packed like a sardine on a train. I mean, this is a bit problematic, because obviously we want the podcast to be as educational as possible, and quite possibly... We've been perpetuating some things which aren't true. Uh, but the, you know, clearly there's an interesting blending of myth and reality going on. Why has this been valuable for you when it comes to trying to channel a sense of civic pride and enthusiasm about this otherwise little-known place? Well, you know, when you look at what drives people to get engaged and get involved, quite often it's the spirit of fun and laughter, isn't it? I mean, you know, rarely do people come out en masse to be miserable. Um, and therefore playing and being playful allows people that opportunity. And when they come out and they engage, they begin to take a different sense of ownership of where they lead. What fascinates me in a lot of the work that we've done is it's then genuinely led to people coming up to us and saying, for example, the area we said where the Tolkien mines were, were actually the areas where the Lambeth and Chelsea filter beds were. And it was when we were researching that that it threw up this astonishing Hansard mention that Jon Snow had used the water from Seething Wells to prove that cholera was waterborne in his grand experiment. Now, as a result of that, we then put on a play in one of the Chelsea coal stores, the old Chelsea coal stores, and we got 800 to 1,000 local residents came along to watch that play. And the response and then the survey monkey afterwards, there were loads of people just saying... It's made me feel proud of where I live, that actually they're at the birthplace of epidemiology, of public health, of clean water. And I find it utterly fascinating that a narrative so strong around innovation, uh, engineering, James Simpson, the hero in all of this, who lived in Surbiton, isn't celebrated in the way that it should be. So you're basically saying that before all this work, a lot of people lived there and didn't even know it was seething wells. Now they know... A, a lot of really interesting real stuff about it. Not only do they know, the biggest bit is they own it because when a developer put in a, pro- a proposition to build floating homes on it, the community actually came together to fight that. So to me, that was a real tribute that not only had they taken on the narrative, they decided that they wanted to do something about it. I find it really interesting, the point about using mythology to find out more about your neighbourhood. Is there a point about it's difficult to divide the fact and the fiction when it comes to an area like Seething Wells? We set up the free university of Seething, the oldest university in the world that to this day still allows people to study for free. In the archives, we discovered a spoke, and it turns out it was the very first spoke from a cheese wheel in the early rudimentary form of cycling. Now, you know, we were staggered to find this, obviously. What it prompted was a guy coming up to us saying, I know why you're doing this. Now, generally speaking, we don't know why we're doing it, so it's always wonderful to have somebody come and tell you. And he said, this is about John Keane, isn't it, to which we blankly said, 
John Keane, he said Happy Jack, and this took us even further down the line of what is this man mad? Well, it turns out the world champion penny farthing cyclist lived and had his workshops in Surbiton, was shipped on a boat to America to compete, and that Surbiton Seething had a penny farthing racetrack. Now, given the passion and interest for cycling, how amazing is that? The Portsmouth Road on which these uh, filter beds exist was the most popular cycling route in the world. The Times on a Whitsun day in the late 1800s said there were 18,000 cyclists going through Kingston on a single day. You know, actually, it's, this place has got some real heritage. And I think it's where it comes to that point you're making about those grey areas is actually being really productive because that's where people have the power to define stuff in a way that works for them. London often feels like a, I guess, patchwork galaxy of cities, towns and villages, each full of amazing histories and discoveries. I mean, we have our official histories, like the impact of the Blitz, or more recently, the 2012 Olympics, but also our folk histories, like the Battle of Cable Street, which we discussed in this podcast before, or the creation of the Notting Hill Carnival. On top of these histories is another mythical layer inhabited by the likes of Dick Whittington, Oliver Twist, Paddington Bear, Cruella de Vil, Bridget Jones, Harry Potter, the Wicker Giants, Gog and Magog. But there's an important debate to be had about who creates histories and myths and where this extraordinary power lies. In recent decades, the increasingly popular art of psychogeography, which can be found in books by Doris Lessing, Virginia Woolf and Ian Sinclair and the films of Patrick Keeler, has created a new space for lovers of London to blend together facts and fiction. But at the same time, with so much residential construction, developers and their marketing departments are more and more the de facto creators of place names and identities. So Robin and Chloe, perhaps you could tell us what your favourite London myths are or popular histories? I think one of my favourite ones is that you're always within six feet of a rat in London, um, which, <laughs> which when you say to a tourist, they are quite upset by it. And even local people still believe it. And I guess, um, you know, it might have been true back in 1665. Now, um, I think it's probably more likely to be, you know, over 150 feet away from it. Um, and that we're probably a lot cleaner now than we were back then. I had another good one, actually, that I really liked, um, which was um, people always say that when the flag is flying at um, Buckingham Palace that the Queen's, you know, in residence there. But actually, that's not true. It's sort of the opposite. Um, it's when the Queen is absent from Windsor Castle, Sandringham House or Buckingham Palace. So basically the flag's flying when she's not there. So everyone, all the tourists go there to, to wave and, you know, say hi to the Queen when she's not actually there. So um, I think they're two of my favourites. And I presume it's to tip off the milkman and, and as Robin, well. Robin, just briefly, your, your favourite myths or popular history? I think it's the Ravens and the Tower. That, you know, if they go, the tower will fall down because I really love the idea of empowering birds in such a way. You know, I'm quite keen on the idea that if a chaffinch, you know, flies uh, east-west, uh, then probably the Channel Tunnel will have to be shut for a month. I quite like the one, I think it was in the 80s when the, the Greater London Council still existed, that all public transport was briefly made free. Uh, and this kind of loosely hung on the New Year's Eve 
being free transport. Yeah. I think there's a whole thing about taxis having to carry a bale of hay and a policeman. You can give birth in a policeman's helmet and all of this stuff. Never, you know, I mean, it's uh, it's it's great. Yeah. I mean, there is there's an important point here, though, because we're, we're talking about celebrating what we're describing as people's heritage over official heritage. I find it utterly fascinating that effectively we're taught to worship kings and queens and that has a value to it. And that when we go to museums, basically we're looking at the wealth of an individual who's gone out and plundered and pillaged and brought it back and we're told that that's very important. But actually, the thing that really fascinates me is the life of real people and that the way we should celebrate that. And that's why I think those narratives that are about people's lives and where they are become and take on much more resonance you know, I think heritage that is live and is relevant and can point forward is so important to people in getting a, a sense of place of where they live. And, and Chloe, you're someone who works in urban design for a local authority. Um, you know, how, how do you go about discovering those uh, people's heritage rather than the official one? The, the more you talk to people, the, the more you find out about their local area. And, you know, most people who work for a council don't actually come from that local area. So you're forever telling people what should happen in their area and not actually listening to what they want in their area. You know, the more people you, you speak to, the more you learn about the locality of place. And I think that has and should have far more space in, in plan making than it probably does. You know, there is a space for myth and legend in local histories. It's just it's far more exciting when it's the whisperings of people than reading it off a board. Part of that is not about saying what is true or false, but about their association with place. And that should be enjoyed and nurtured as opposed to, you know, quashed. I think the point you raised around the developer's role in this is really interesting as well, because a lot of what we're doing is releasing the releasing the voices of people, whereas developers tend to come in and want to write, and clearly they're writing for value, so you end up seeing the word village after a lot of things or certain names where you go, really, how that? You know, and it always feels like it's been applied to something rather than been born out of somewhere. And, you know, that also happens with local authorities because they're always trying to present best face forward. I think your point about the the agendas behind gathering these stories is really salient, and I completely echo that. Um, for example, my, uh, my experiences recently has been with Ridley Road Market in East London, which is undergoing redevelopment. And... A lot of the stories which came out from that market and that community has really been a drive against the threats of, of redevelopment. It's come from a place of resistance. And that often stands in contrast to, as you said yourself, the, um, let's say, profit-seeking motives of other agendas. And I think the joy is how do we rally to before something? So what do we give as the opportunities for people to start to describe the sort of place they want to live in? And those? So actually that narrative about a market becomes the lifeblood of that place because actually why would you want to lose that richness and just get it into another vanilla development that doesn't relate to real? So we've been doing this project, Shedex, Growing, I uh, Growing Ideas in Tolworth. Now, Tolworth was lovingly described by the Evening Standard as the scrag end of the Royal Borough of Kingston-upon-Thames. But I'd stick it on a road sign, welcome to the scrag end <laughs> of Kingston, because actually, you know, there's a real danger here that it is that always driving, not honouring and 
I found it fascinating because we had our Tolworth market this Sunday and somebody came up and said, do you know what's really interesting? People in our street are now saying they live in Tolworth, whereas before they were saying they lived in Surbiton. Now, that's actually a hell of a change, but it's about I've got, I've got my narrative now. I've got a reason to feel proud of where I live. And that might be because of Corinthian Casuals Football Club or David Bowie. It might be about whatever they've latched onto that's made him gone, this is special. And and Chloe, uh, like with Kingston Council's obviously playing a commissioning role in, in getting this going, have you been su- surprised by kind of the, some of the stories that have been unlocked around along the way? I think you do find that people are coming out of the woodwork to take part in more community activities. And I think that's something that the community brain have done um, so well, not, you know, not just on Shedex, but just what they what they do. And that's through inspiring people to take ownership over their own space. What's happened during the projects, you know, particularly within Shedex, is, as Robin says, people are feeling like they belong to, you know, a place uh, rather than a space that people just walk through. And I think what COVID's done is has allowed people to spend more time in those places and discover the um, little pieces that you love about your neighbourhood that you never used to know about because you were too busy getting to work. Well, clearly, this is a really great tool, a really useful thing uh, for local authorities or for anybody who wants to sort of leverage new change in their area without using the traditional avenues. However, we live in an era of fake news and culture wars, and there are stereotypes. And in London, there are terrible myths about places and streets. There's prejudice against public housing estates. You know, we know that there is a lot of power in myths and there's plenty of historical examples where it can go wrong. Is there an important stewarding role in making sure things don't get out of hand? The weakness we all have is trust. And there's a wonderful expression that projects and things only happen at the speed of trust. And I'm actually a great believer in the quality of people and the individuals. We've got a saying, everybody's brilliant if they're given the help and support to be brilliant. And I think the danger comes when you try and steward things and when you try and police things, that actually by doing that, you'll create the opposite reaction to it. And, you know, I think this, and again, we took term it permission to be brilliant, that actually people will surprise you with how fabulous they are. Quite often when these things go skewing off, it's primarily because a group with a deliberate interest have got themselves engaged and involved with it. Okay, but if I take that a bit further, if you look at something like Twitter right now, that's full of people giving and it's pretty rough environment. You talked about history earlier, people's history. If we tried to write a history of the era we live in now, someone's going to have to look at all that stuff on Twitter and try and make sense of what is quite an intense and conflicting discourse, often extremely damaging. Is it just good fortune that what you experience when you do it in person with good, with good cheer works? I think there's no doubt about it that face-to-face communication tends to modify people's behaviour. I think the platforms that are offering um, boxing rings for people to just go in and just fight over any scrap is very dangerous. You don't tend to see that same behaviour um, when people are face-to-face. There are issues, but again, that's a part of the reason of having strong community, isn't it? That actually you get that, and I hate the phrase, but it's kind of self-policing. 
Lockdown has forced us all to spend much more time in our local areas, and for many people, the experience has been surprisingly positive, resulting in a newfound appreciation for both open space and heritage. In many ways, it seems like the perfect moment to deploy more imagination and celebration to realise the full potential of London's many places. Chloe, perhaps you could talk us through some of the areas where Kingston Council has been working to improve and unlock beautiful places and spaces. And I guess in this time, the past six months, have things changed much as a result of COVID-19? A lot has changed in the last few months um, of how people approach and use public spaces. And they've become even more important as the free spaces and the spaces that you can socially distance. I have worked in the past few years on a couple of projects uh, which tries to hold people at at the heart of what it does, particularly the reimagining Kingston Town Centre Streets and Spaces strategy, which was all about working with the community to try and create a document that would uh, allow them or empower them to go out and make change and have something that they can use to say, you know, we've got support from the local community to do this. So just tell us, how does that work exactly? How does that how does this document empower people? So the document sets out a series of principles and key moves that any project that happens within Kingston Town Centre should do. So it talks about community involvement, um, uh, highlighting heritage and culture, uncovering and scratching out dirty spaces and revamping them into, into new reimagined spaces. So the idea is that anyone could take this document, use it for, say, crowdsourcing um, and have the, you know, have the power behind them to say, this is a document that's been um, supported at committee, endorsed by members and officers and has community support. Um, and therefore, you know, any money coming from the GLA, you know, it would have already been through its sort of consultation. And Chloe, just our listeners are going to be from all over London. And is this something that they could seek in their own neighbourhood if there were changes going on, that they could deploy a similar toolkit to make sure that, say, when a high street's been redesigned to make it COVID-19 compliant, that, um, that they really get a say? Yeah, I think so. I don't see why not. I mean, councils are always continuously trying to put plans in place and I think that's the problem we were with this document we weren't trying to put a plan in place we were trying to put a toolkit in place uh, to help people do what they think or they thought should happen to these spaces as opposed to the council saying this is what makes a good place Uh, and I think that's what people can do and what other councils can do don't tell people how to do it but give them the tools to be able to go and do it. From your travels, Robin and Chloe, across the the city, are there other places which you have recognised folk histories, interesting mythologies, which our listeners would like to know about? And and perhaps if they're listening from those areas, they can use those to reimagine the neighbourhoods they call home. I mean, for me, Camberwell has a fabulous... um... A, a fabulous history around it. Clerkenwell has a fabulous history around it. And I don't think it's in a way for... you know The joy of this, I think, is for the people in the places to know those things are there and it's for them to find them. We go and we offer help in other areas and we always say we're not bringing you an answer. What we'll do is allow the answers to come from where people are. You know, it's it's a really big deal that actually these thoughts are born out of the area and not transported into the area. You know, this is just about the capacity of communities to be brilliant. 
and to recognise there are building blocks where they live. Now, sometimes you can't see them, so you have to create and make some. But then it's amazing that people will come forward. So we did a project celebrating the history of music in this area, and people came down from Liverpool who do the uh, guided tours up there and said, you have as much musical history in south-west London as we do in Liverpool. Why the hell don't you do anything with it? Well, the answer is, the trouble is with particularly the suburban areas, a lot of people spend their life travelling in and out of London, uh, the centre, and they don't have that absolute connection. You know, they are often ghosts in the land in which they live. Now, it's right that COVID has suddenly made people feel that where they live, they need to have a bigger investment in. We need to find the playgrounds that allow people to touch the soil where they live and know that actually they can plant an idea and a thought and there will be a community to support and help grow it. And once you get that, it unveils all these magnificent people. Now, not everybody is creative. Not, some people just want to wear a yellow Marshalls jacket, but however they want to contribute, they're as valuable. I think it's a really interesting point you're making and I think it ties quite nicely into the conversation that we've been having around institutions like the local authority and the role they have in facilitating these kinds of conversations. When we're talking about history as we know it, traditionally and still to this day, it is the museum, it is the gallery, which is sort of the the container for these sort of um, narratives and these experiences. What you have showed with your organisation is that there can be informal spaces, grassroots spaces, which similarly host these kinds of stories. And you know, now we're going into uh, an era in London where, um, for example, there's going to be a new Museum of London, which is going to be right yeah. in the heart of the, the heart of the city. I mean, how do institutions, or rather, how can institutions change to become better containers for the kind of histories that we're talking about here? These mythologies, which, you know, we can go to a shed in Tolworth and hear it, but we're not going to hear it at the moment in a uh, in a central London museum. Uh, it's really interesting that. Thank you. Uh, I mean, strangely enough, the shed that we built went to the V&A um, and suddenly we had people from Tolworth going to the V&A Museum who would have never thought of going there, but they went to celebrate the fact that a little part of Tolworth was there. And I think that tells us how a lot of these institutions can work. There is a cultural snobbery and we know it. Um, and, you know, we've got to reevaluate what we place as, you know, on our pedestals, what are we putting? And it does it always have to be that stuff that has financial value or can it be the whisper of somebody's story we did a project called the street museum where we worked with a road in Surbiton called cleveland road which most people would go i'm slightly surprised to find a, a road like this because it's workers cottages and bits and pieces and what we did was talk to people down that street and say you choose an object that has value and we will, working with Kingston University, they'll help you curate that object and we'll have an exhibition in Kingston Museum called the Street Museum of all of these objects and your stories relating to them. And I was kind of like, I doubt anybody's going to choose anything of financial value. I think this is going to be about emotional value. And sure enough, when it came to the exhibition, there were these wonderful things, but the neighbours, the people in that street came. More often than not, they'd never met each other, but they came to this institution. But the thing that made me cry and genuinely might still now is there was an old guy living down that road and he put in a few objects, but he also put a black and white photograph of his wife. The photograph, she was beautiful. She looked like a movie star. We put that at the start of the exhibition. Nearly everybody coming in said, who's the woman? And we said, it's that man's wife over there. And they went and talked to him. A week later, he said to me, I lived in a street of strangers and now I live in a street of friends. 
I'm interested to know moving forward from from the day we are now, from the month we are now, is is what is the role of imagination in your perspective in continuing to enhance our experience of these of these streets and of these corners and of these informal interstitial spaces that we have come to love in our neighborhood over the past six, seven months? So it's our belief that the future will be more local, more mutual, more sustainable, and that what we are witnessing is a re-emergence of the importance of the smaller high street, the smaller centre, etc., and people's relationship to that. Now, there's an argument that would say the original social network was the high street. It's where people went to shop, but they also went to chat, to gossip, to do all the things that we do. And our trend in shopping has been to drive further and further away from that. Actually, I think we've rediscovered is that sense of people wanting the personality back. And therefore, what I think we can all do is try and enhance that personality and that experience, those green spaces, those public spaces, by making them, and again, that's why I would argue making them playgrounds. Our danger is always over-designing stuff and making it only usable in this way. We've now worked out what you want, and it's this. And it never is. And we've got to start looking to designing chameleon spaces that can change and be flexible and that actually then reflect the colour and need of where they are. There's there's a lot of frustration right now, and, and partly it's frustration at the kind of pace of change, especially with public spaces, cycleways, low-traffic neighbourhoods, pavements, um, new road layouts, and so on. Is it fair to say that possibly the imagination of Londoners could be this massive untapped tool uh, that could make up for some of these perceived failings, which are often blamed on public authorities right now? I guess the thing is, is people need to know that they can go out and do these things and be not given the tools, but showing that these spaces are spaces for them to do stuff with. You know, the whole parking day when people take over a parking space and turn it into a beach or a parkler or a you know place to just read a book and sit on the floor it's things like that where people can use their imagination to go you know now I can own this space and I can do it and it's it's not going to cost me anything to do it's I guess the council's potential role or just the community's role is to vocalize that using things like social media to say you know on July the 10th it's going to be take over you know the streets or the park or the you know, high street, close it down. I think that's what we need to be doing more, not telling people how to be imaginative. Everyone has their own uh, creativity within within them. They just need it drawn out of them. One of the things that happened during lockdown in Kingston was one of our public spaces, unfortunately, had to be um, closed down due to public health um issues taking place um so it was closed down and a lot of barriers were put up and it it didn't look good for the area particularly when you know public spaces are are key spaces to to be in during these times so the local businesses asked for them to be covered up and to get the materials to be able to work with the community and local artists to put their own um artistic 
licenses o- over these um, coverings of the hoardings. And it was really beautiful what was achieved um, by the local businesses, not by the council, um, and by local people. And I, I think there was a real ownership over that. There's an interesting point to be made about whether within the local authorities we can actually be more active in, I guess, not only encouraging that imagination, but um, being active drivers of that. I mean, do we need to have a, a department of imagination within the planning department? Do we need to have a department of dreams within the the regeneration team? And and what is the sort of what are the official roles that we can create within institutions like the local authorities to facilitate those kinds of uh, conversations? I think councils or authorities always want to hold the reins to make sure that no one's going to do anything out of the box you know it <laughs> and i think even if you got you know a coordinator of imagination in the council they're still going to be carboshed by you know members and other officers so that's why you want people like robin you want you want um people that are from the community saying i want to do this and i want to do it here and be able to just go and do it i mean sometimes you just shouldn't ask if you can do something you should just go and do it absolutely absolutely (laughs) not speaking for the planning department i'm not speaking for the (laughs) kingston council you know on behalf of the kingston council there i'm just saying you know when you get like flash mobs and things like that you know that changes a space it's not detrimental to to public spaces it actually brings memories and enjoyment and you know a new sense of um, excitement to a place that you see monotonously every day and you know the the council shouldn't do that that's not the role of the council we should support people doing those things but you know if everything's regimented it's it's boring it's not exciting and it's exciting when things just happen i think there's a there's always a tension uh, and I think we need to recognise and identify that there is that tension between a local authority wanting things to happen and controlling it and actually supporting things to happen. The uh, Reimagining Kingston Town Centre basically provided a framework for activity within it. So it basically it highlighted opportunities. And I thought that was a very grown-up way of doing it. It didn't prescribe, it merely offered opportunities. And I think you're 100 percent right. You'd, you know, actually, councils need to say top on our list: imagination. Top on our list: dreams. Top of our list: hope. I wonder by sticking labels on things, you you give value to it, and by giving value a monetary value to something, it then has some level of distaste to it as well. Um, so I think there's a real careful balance to be made because it you know it's a bit like community engagement everyone says you know you need to engage with the community it becomes a tick box exercise if if creativity and imagination is what is born from the community rather than a developer or a council putting it on a place and there's not there's nothing worse than you can see organizations that have half an hour a week to be creative. Yeah, it's such a lovely concept, isn't it? What time is it? 9:56. Come on everyone, let's fire off the actually, you know, the the business is to c- continually have an atmosphere in which people feel they can be creative, they can be imaginative, yeah. they can be um and that's the bit we've got to foster, isn't it? And making these playgrounds makes it happen. Could you imagine, say you had the Prime Minister or the Mayor of London, what sort of workshop, event or performance would you devise uh, to get them thinking along these lines? 
Um, well, the first thing I would do was actually get people to tell stories. You know, I think one of the most powerful things is the way things that something has impacted on somebody's life that has changed their life. And, you know, what I'd want to hear from is all those people who happened down a street and saw something that made them think that gives me opportunity or went to an event and it made them feel this is for me, isn't it? I feel like I live in this area now. So I think, you know, there is a tapestry of narrative that we need to put together to yeah, because... You know, dear God, I think we've all been workshopped to death, haven't we? We've, you know, I mean, actually, it's the, you know, we need the anti-workshop. We need the thing that says, you know, go talk, listen to people. So, um, Chloe started by saying, you know, do we listen enough? And the answer is clear. We know we don't. And yet everybody, like that street, has a story. It might manifest itself in an object. It might manifest itself in a piece of music. It might manifest itself in a moment in their life. But if we can capture those bits, then you can start to build what the playgrounds need to feel like. This podcast was brought to you by Open City, the creator of London's largest architecture festival, opening up hundreds of buildings to the public each year. Go to openhouselondon.org.uk forward slash appeal to help the charity that's been hit hard by COVID-19. A big thank you to Massive Music for making our podcast track, to our editor Ed Ryman and our illustrator Claudia Alexandrino, to our podcast host Silasi Satipa, Armin Nuri, Lara Kinnear, Merlin Fulcher and our producer Ruby Maynard-Smith and the Open City staff Rhea Martin, Zoe Cave and Sean Milliner. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.